It's time for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Doug is a certified financial planner, providing you with a personal financial hotline to answer your questions about tax planning, investments, retirement planning, estate planning, and education planning. Doug and Linda are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing financial and investment services since 1983. Doug and Linda will be answering your questions on WPTF's phone lines anytime during the next hour. Call 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Call toll-free 1-800-662-7979. And for mobile phones, it's Star 680. And now, Doug and Linda Lewis and Money Matters. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife, Linda, who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983. For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers. So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on the open lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Or you can call us toll-free, long-distance, at 1-800-662-7979. Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, What's a will? What's a living will? And yes, it really can confuse you, but you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs. And people are asking, is there any solution? Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles. And that's the Certified Financial Planner. It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life. Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt. Well, yes, Linda, and yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement. 
and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it? Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts? If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion. Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal? Should they have long-term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And, of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? Bond mutual funds, equipment leasing partnerships, REITs, CDs, gold, annuities. So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning, tax planning, insurance, or investments, call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions. Those numbers to call are 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Out-of-towners, call us toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. And if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years, welcome to the show. Securities offered through HBEC Inc., member FINRA, SIPC, HBEC Inc., and Lewis Financial Management, LLC, are not affiliated. Investment advisory services offered through Lewis Financial Management, LLC. Well, Deborah, it's good to have you on the show tonight. Linda's not here, and you're subbing for Deborah. <laughs> subbing for Linda. <laughs> I'm sorry, Deborah. You're subbing for Linda. Yes, I am. I get the women in my life mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on the show again this evening. Well, good. It's a beautiful day out there. You paid a big sacrifice to be in here with this kind of weather out (laughs) there. I certainly did. (laughs) Well, Deborah, we are getting down to the April 15th deadline. We are, and there have been lots of articles and lots of periodicals talking about it. Basically asking people, are you ready? And can you meet that April 18th deadline? And if not, what should you do? Well, now, wait a second. I said April 15th, and you said April 18th. You're absolutely right. There is, is that, a di- an extension. Is that a typographical error? Probably not, because April 15th is a holiday this year in Washington, D.C. So the actual deadline date is April 15th. But a lot of people are facing the big uh, stress factor. And quite frankly, sometimes it's not so bad just to file an extension. 
when one files an extension, what, what is entailed in an extension? It's a lot easier than most people think. First of all, most taxpayers can get an automatic six-month filing extension, and you don't even need to cite a reason. It's quite simple. You can get it without any problem at all. And sometimes it's the best thing to do because it gives you a little more time to uh, think through, are there any other benefits that you forgot to get on your return or that maybe your accountant forgot? Do many people use extensions? Actually, uh, Deborah, the amount of people is shocking. Uh, I believe that there's sometimes uh, as many as, what did I see? I think I saw over 80 million Americans already had filed extension requests. That's over 58% of the people. So it's not unusual. It's It's a very powerful tool, actually, because... There are other tax strategies that people forget about. Like what? Well, one might be the SEP IRA for the single, uh, for the self-employed. Now you might think, if I'm going to go ahead and have a SEP IRA retirement plan, don't I have to get my money funding the plan before December 31, 2010 for the December, I mean for the 2010 tax return? And the answer is no. And then your next question might be, well, don't we have to get it in by April 15th or April 18th? And again, the answer is no. You have until the date that you file your return, which means you could wait another six months and uh, open up a SEP IRA, get the tax deduction, reduce your taxes and get the money invested there and so forth. It can be powerful. Also, There are ways you can use your simple IRA if you are the owner of the company. That's another way that you can do this. And other things, last-minute ideas that people are wrestling with, what about my charitable contributions? For example, suppose you've just thought of some other charitable contributions that you made through the year, but you need time to go ahead and get documentation in your hands, like receipts. Not ones that you would like to make, but ones that you did make already? Exactly. Prior to December 31st? Exactly. Okay. Many people just, uh, they've made contributions through the year, but they just don't have enough uh, records or documentation, because now the new rules say you have to document. Okay. But this gives you time. Now, the point is, if you file the extension, and that does give you another six months if you want it, you have to be careful that that doesn't automatically give you more time to pay the taxes. Would one have to make a estimated amount that is going to be due, maybe payable to the IRS? Right. You've got to make sure that as best you've got it figured out, that the amount of taxes that you are going to owe is actually paid at the date of April 18th. Uh, it's a little tricky there, but if you're doing a SEP IRA, that would work out fine. And there is a warning, which I'm not sure is that serious, but the warning is that if you don't get the amount of taxes paid in time, then you will have to pay interest. At least that's the warning the IRS makes. But the interest rate right now is so, so, so low. It's not, it's sort of like a toothless watchdog, in my opinion. Uh, He can slobber all over you, but I don't think he's going to bite you very hard. Okay. Well, if you're out there and you'd like to give us a call about this issue or anything else, please give us a call at 860-WPTF. 
That's 860-9783, or call us toll-free, 800-662-7979. Well, Deborah, as you were working this past week in the office and looking at different magazines and articles, anything that you wanted to discuss that caught your eye? Well, there was actually a very nice article about something that had happened at Wells Fargo ATMs. And the article was basically saying not only can you withdraw and deposit at an ATM, but now you can make a donation. A charitable donation at the ATM machine. A charitable donation. That's incredible. It really was. It moved me. It was a way for people who would who may have seen this, the most recent of tragedies, the one in Japan, mm-hmm. or in any other area, maybe locally. But Wells Fargo was literally asking them if they would like to de- donate a dollar at the ATM. So across the country, people were donating. Just punch it in right then at the ATM Just machine. Just punch it in right there. So now the ATM can be a place where you withdraw money, deposit money, and donate. Wow, that is tremendous. Did they raise a lot of money that way? A lot of money. I believe it was in the millions. Wow. You know, with the generation of people who are now uh, just basically, I don't want to say addicted, but used to avoiding checks and doing everything by ATM, that is a great way to fund uh, your charitable inclinations. I would say as a financial planner, you need to be careful to keep your own records because you may want to use those tax deductions at the end of the year, at the end of 2011. And another great benefit of doing it at the ATM is that you walk away with, in hand, a receipt, something that would be able to be placed in your file for documentation. That's exactly right. Well, let's see what else we have on our screen. I know, I think, well... Why don't we take a call first, and then we'll come back and see what else in the news hit us this week, okay? Let's take Steve's call. Let's take Steve's call. Steve, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? How much could you leave your spouse without having estate taxes, or can you leave everything to him without estate taxes? Well, how much would you like to leave her? Counting life insurance, close to $2 million. And that's a good point. You said counting life insurance. Is the life insurance needed for her survival, for well, her no, support? Probably not, but... It's there to cover estate taxes, and it's also there as a form of retirement. Well, you've thrown in even a third curveball. First story is that you could, if you choose, leave her $100 million and have no estate taxes. Okay. But the problem is, unless she can quickly remarry, it will hit when she dies. Uh, well, I knew that. So so, so you, you never want to leave it all to her. That's the whole thing. Uh-huh. But you have to do it in such a way that... You create a taxable estate at the first death. Now, the taxable estate you create is by leaving something to someone other than your wife. I understand. So if you leave it to a trust, it's now somebody other than your wife. That's right. Now, this trust then can leave all of its income to her. That's right. So she can receive the income from it. And when you start putting some more bells and whistles on this thing, you can even make her the trustee of it so she can control it. You can even give her what we call five-by-five five powers, which is the right to go in and get 5% of the principal if she needs to, to help out with her normal lifestyle. I see. And she wants the same over in her estate. Now, with regard to the insurance, you said you want to have insurance for retirement planning. That's a no-no. 
never get insurance to build up cash value to support you during retirement. No, it's just a supplement. Yeah, you don't want to do that. That's a bad move. Well, I figured what I was going to do was going to take it and just turn it over and put it in a trust. Yeah, that, that, what you've done is you're creating a disaster for yourself. What you want to do is you want to go ahead and have an irrevocable life insurance trust established now that will be the owner and the beneficiary of all your insurance. That's right. That way, nothing will come back into her estate and then be hit when she dies. Can you do that with a current policy? Yes. However, to do it, you have to wait three years before you die. In other words, if you die within a three-year period, then it will come back into your estate as if you didn't do it. So if I did it now at 42, which, I, you know, hopefully I won't die soon, if I do it now, then I would be okay. Is right. right. You will have moved all of your insurance out of the taxable estate. The trust has to be the owner, and the trust has to be the beneficiary of the insurance, and you need to do an insurance needs analysis. I see to find out, to make sure that she will have enough without this insurance because the insurance can't be used for her. Well, that's what I wanted to do. That was kind of my question I was asking. And that's, that was my goal, right. was to move this policy to a, a trust, et cetera, and I not be the owner of the policy. Right. Your insurance agent should have advised you in doing that. As a matter of fact, the best kind of policy to get for estate taxes is one we call a second-to-die policy, uh-huh. which is one policy that pays because you don't know who's going to die last, you or she. Have you ever worked with a financial planner, Steve? No, I've worked with a, a broker, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah you, what you want to do yeah. is you want to find a certified financial planner who charges a fee for their knowledge, not selling you a product. I understand. Uh, and then uh, go it that way because a second-to-die policy is the one that's the best one and also the cheapest one for paying estate taxes and also keeps you from having to buy two policies because you don't know who's going to die last. That's right. Now, that's right. are you self-employed? or? Yes. Okay, so... Yeah, it's time. <laughs> oh, well, I've got, I mean, I'm money purchase, pension plan, profit sharing plan. Right, but your estate planning, you, you still need. Yeah, well, that's right. That's my, that's the reason I call. Yes, sir. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that you probably can do, uh, that you probably haven't, have not been, uh, exposed to, but I would advise you to get a financial plan produced, uh, and then see how everything works out because if you, if you, if you have the potential at, at age 41 to leave a large estate, you want to go ahead and maximize the investment side and all of the benefits you've got here, the tax side, and tie it to the estate side. I see. Well, I knew that using life insurance for retirement was not a good thing, but I just happened to have it. And so one of those deals. Yeah, what you might want to do is if you cancel that policy, take out your cash value, buy a second-to-die policy inside an irrevocable life insurance trust, mm-hmm. you could use that cash value to reduce your premium on the, on the, on the policy for estate tax. If I can provide any more information for you, you can call the office at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. We're here in Raleigh. I'll be happy to either send you some information or see what we can do to answer any more questions that you might have. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks for calling, Steve. Steve. Well, Dad and Doug, there's another article that I'd like to talk about. It was one titled, Retirees Reluctant to Tap Their 401k Funds. 
and it basically was saying that there seems to be a lot of retirees who are reluctant and they see their retirement accounts as a security blanket, only to be used as a last resort. Did you see that article? I didn't see it, Deborah. Okay. I didn't see it. Where was it? It was in the um, investment news, one of uh, the monthly periodicals that we get at the office. Right. Yeah. Do you remember anything you told us? I do. It was basically saying that in general, much of the research that's out there about what retirees are doing these days is withdrawing money from funds that are other than 401k funds, maybe savings, uh, personal investments, non-qualified funds. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's the better view. Uh, The older investors who are unsure about taking income from taxable accounts, uh, once they have retired, if they are over 70 and a half years old, they're required to, by law, take the minimum. Is that the required minimum distribution that we often hear of? That is. But even if they are under 71, 70 and a half years old and they're not required to, let's say that they have two different portfolios. Let's say they have a a million dollars in a personal, non-qualified portfolio. Okay. And then they have another million dollars that came from, that was in their 401k. Oh, right. Well, one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make is they leave it at the at, in a 401k. Should never do that. They should have rolled it over from the employer plan to an IRA. So is that like when someone retires and they leave their retirement plan at the ex-employer? That's the mistake. That's the mistake. But let's say they haven't made that mistake and okay. they've rolled it over. And now they can take income monthly from the IRA or they could take it from the the non-retirement portfolio, and let's say they had a million in each, and they say, well, gee, if I take money from the non-retirement portfolio, then that's cheaper taxes. That is half of the story. It's correct. But the danger is, upon death, that one will pass to their children tax-free because of what's called a step-up in basis, whereas the IRA will be hit with the biggest tax, so sometimes it works just the opposite. Sometimes the worst thing you can be doing is avoiding taking from the IRA or the 401k. You might want to be taking more that way because that one is going to hurt more to your heirs. It's not as simple an equation as, oh, well, just don't tap one and tap the other. You really need to work carefully with a certified financial planner and see how you get all of your goals met. Because sometimes, as a lot of farmers say, you can step in a caddy, you know, in a cow patty pretty easily. So looking at the whole portfolio, what you might have in qualified funds and what right. you might have in non-qualified funds is much more important than simply just applying one rule to one part of your portfolio. Bingo. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, very good. Very good. And call us, please. 860-WPTF. That's 860-9783 or 800-662-7979. Deborah, there was an article that I did see in the Financial Planning Magazine of March, the uh, March 11 issue, and it said something about Nest egg survival, when is it time to start taking regular withdrawals and how durable will the client's nest eggs be 
to last for the desired period of time. Or I'm life. guessing this is the most serious of a retiree or a pre-retiree's considerations. It is, and it's very unfortunate that what they call the drawdown phase uh, is, in my opinion, misapplied many times by so-called financial planners. You know, the drawdown phase might be described as the relentless cracking of the retirement nest egg. You've worked all your life, you've accumulated this big nest egg, and now it's time to start withdrawing uh, uh, from it to survive or to support yourself. And it's like the cracking of that nest egg. But the big question is, how do you analyze whether it's going to last? And that's probably the most serious of all the questions. It is. How do you take the money out? How do you analyze? Well, the article itself was an extremely analytical uh, article. It went through all kinds of uh, mathematical uh, methods and and the assumptions underlying each method. And, and yet, I had a very difficult time buying the whole article. You know, analyzing how asset allocation affects portfolio durability during retirement, it is a big issue, but... It's basically based upon the assumption that we have to know how long the client is going to live, what's a safe growth rate on the portfolio, and therefore what is the withdrawal rate or amount we should be taking so it lasts over the client's lifetime. The The problem with that is that we're trying to say, what day will you die? And if you die one day after that, you missed because the money ran out. And that, in my experience as a financial planner, is not comfortable for clients to see their money start depleting and being told, but it'll last the rest of your life. And probably not realistic either. When you are planning and looking for the future and how long your assets are going to last, you're not going to ever know when you're going to die and if you would outlive what you've accumulated during those years. That's right. So what's a more practical way of looking at that question? What is so shocking to me is how frequent people who go into retirement planning bump into this mathematical formula, uh, the drawdown phase. My view is you should never draw down. My view is that your portfolio should always be producing enough income to support you at your desired lifestyle and, if possible, growing as fast as inflation so that as your expenses increase, your income from your portfolio increases and you don't have to worry about my portfolio is going to be depleting. Will it last for my lifetime? I'm guessing this is one of the biggest parts of how you spend your day, speaking with people, trying to answer this very question. It is, Deborah. It's one of the most important questions that clients come to me with. It's also one of the issues I have to re-educate the clients that come to us because they just have never been... They've never been exposed to this. They've been exposed to all kinds of quick little formulas that the major mutual fund companies and the different uh, uh, financial magazines tell them to use, divide this by this and this by this, and you'll have enough to last your lifetime. I just uh, I, I don't like the approach. The key insight from the study of the article was the importance, in my opinion, of maintaining a diversified portfolio through all phases Diversification, of course, is going to be the crucial issue as far as keeping that portfolio at its original balance.
Well, if that is a concern of yours, please give us a call, 860-WPTF, 860-9783, And of course, if you don't want to call tonight, you can call our office at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. And Linda or Deborah will be happy to give you information on setting up an appointment to meet with me. Well, there's another article that was in a recent um, paper, and I believe it was either today's or yesterday's, and it was titled The Asset Allocation Fallacy, and you and I were talking a little bit about this earlier today on the back deck. What do you think were some of the most important things that the, the asset allocation fallacy article was really talking about? I was very happy at last to see the writer Jim Stewart come to the understanding that I have had for many years and that I have uh, been speaking about on the air. It's, again, one of these quick little down-and-dirty formulas, just like the last one we were just talking about. This one is the time-honored adage that your asset allocation, that means your split between your investments, should mirror your age. And according to these little uh, paradigms, it's like, uh, oh, 60-40 stocks, bonds at age 40, uh, 50-50 at age 50, 40, 60, at age 60, and the entire industry that is designed around these types of things has come up with a set of mutual funds called the target date funds. Well, as usual, things that are often said to be so simple and don't usually meet one's or a client's needs. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This simple philosophy or simple strategy, as it's called, in my opinion, is about as nonsensical as you can get. And the writer of this article, Jim Stewart, comes to the same conclusion. He says the logic of increasing an allocation to less risky, less volatile bonds as a person gets older, it on, on the surface, it would seem unassailable, but he points out that there are at least three serious problems with this age-old adage. I believe you said that number one, or the first part, a problem, the problem that he said in the article was the loss to principal should should yields ever go up, as they surely will someday. Yeah. So if 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 our goal is to put people more and more into bonds, the older they get, then you start thinking, well, aren't bonds guaranteed? And the answer is <laughs> yes and no. If you've got a 25-year bond, yes, it's guaranteed to pay you off at 25. But if your age happens to be 78, then I think you're pushing the luck to say you have no risk between the time now and the time you're 103 or whatever. All right? Bonds can go down in value and do go down in value if there is a rise in interest rates. And surely, as he pointed out in the article, they are so low now they have to go up. And that means if we're putting clients more and more into bonds because we think it's safer, we're actually putting them into higher risk, not lower risk. Isn't this exactly one of the concerns right now in the industry today? It is. It's a big concern. It's called the interest rate bubble that may be looming. That's exactly right. So that's one of the first problems with moving more and more into bonds according to an age phallus, an age uh, formula. And number two, I believe, is the adage also fails to consider that it, as investors age and their life expectancy declines, so do their long-term financial needs. This is so absurd. When I hear people come to me and say, well, I've been told that we should go ahead and uh, 
put as much money as we can into our 401k because we're at a higher tax bracket now, but when we retire, we'll be at a lower tax bracket because we'll be spending less. That's not my experience with clients at all. Clients actually spend more after retirement, and the older they get, their expenses very often go up. And so... uh Would those expenses be due to age and just the general situation that you might be in a child might be in a situation might need your help that's right there's about three types of areas which cause expenses to rise in retirement one is just that your adult children are in financial issues that they need to go with some help and so you want to help them you don't want them to wait until you die to be helped number two you're in good health you and your wife now want to start taking some more tru- cruises and trips and where you used to take one vacation a year, now you might take three cruises a year because this is what you worked all your life for. So travel expenses can go up. And then number three, as you get into the later decades of your life, medical expenses go up. Right. And unfortunately, that's the usual situation. This is, that's, that's why the adage that you should move more and more into bonds is, uh, is just, it's, it's not right. And he points that out. Now, he did say there's a third assumption that is wrong with that adage of moving from stocks to bonds the older you get. It assumes that stocks are high-risk assets and that aging investors should steadily cut back. That assumption is wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, first of all, we've already pointed out that bonds are not necessarily lower risk than stocks. Actually, I know some bond funds who during the collapse in 2008, I can think of one where it dropped 80%. I don't know any conservative stock funds that dropped 80%. The other thing is that stock mutual funds can be quite conservative if they are designed to be uh, conservative funds, investing in high-grade blue-chip stocks, high-dividend-paying stocks. Actually, the dividends on some of these stock mutual funds right now is higher than the short-term bond funds. Wow, that's very interesting. So there were at least those three fallacies to the asset allocation uh, methodology of mirror your age with stocks to bonds. And I was really happy to see the article taking that position at last. He he concluded, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I do remember him saying in the article, well, it seems like the only solution is just to keep on working as long as you can. And there I think he's wrong. No, 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 (laughs) I don't buy that one. No, the solution is meet with a certified financial planner, design a portfolio with withdrawal assumptions and growth assumptions and client planner needs assumptions. Put those three together, meet with a certified financial planner, and you will be... Well, I think that's the one we would all rather choose either, you know, also. (laughs) Right. Everybody's circumstances are going to be different. uh, And you can go ahead and achieve what you're trying to achieve in most cases. Well, there was an article today um, in the uh, local paper, News and Observer, and it was talking about the ins and outs of beneficiary IRAs. Now, that is a very tricky issue. Uh, I did see the article, uh, and it was in the um, uh, uh, money section, and the writer wrote and said that I have limited ability to meet with a professional. Does that generally mean that I can't afford 
to hire someone. Right. That was the way the question began. And so the 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 writer wrote in and gave the facts. Do you remember some of those facts? I do. There was a situation, I believe the mother had passed away and she had begun talking with the beneficiary or the uh, custodian of her mother's IRA and she wasn't getting very far and she wasn't getting a good response, mostly on the emotional feedback. But in general, the person was minimizing the importance of what she should do and what she should consider. Right. She said that the custodian of the IRA told her just request a check and since the IRA is about $50,000, get a check for the IRA because you are the beneficiary and it's not, uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's your mother. Okay. That, who, who it is. It's not a spouse. So, uh, the, the writer then who put the question out said that a friend told her that she could do something else. She could get the check and then she could roll it into her own IRA within 60 days and not pay any taxes. How does that approach work? Well, first of all, and the answer is in, it just too, too complicated to sum up very quickly. No, it's not too oh, complicated. Okay. There is a 60 day rule. Okay. It's called the rollover rule, but it doesn't pertain to non-spouses. Oh, and that is unusual to be right. talking about beneficiary so IRAs. The, yeah, so the, 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 the friend who told this writer, this one who wrote the question, saying, you can get the check and put it in your own within 60 days, was wrong. Okay. You can only do that if it's a spouse that died. Okay. If it's a non-spouse and you're the beneficiary of an IRA and it wasn't your husband or your wife, and as in this case it was a child, then that 60-day rule doesn't work. And if the check had been made out personally, well, the the advice about the beneficiary IRA is what was given as the answer. I'm not comfortable with that answer. Okay. Why why aren't you? What are some of the things that people need to consider? There is this matter of the beneficiary IRA. Now, the answer in the newspaper was you should establish a beneficiary IRA and just tell your current custodian that you want those funds in your deceased mother's IRA moved into a direct new beneficiary IRA using a trustee-to-trustee transfer. Nothing wrong with that. That can be done very easily. And then the answer continued, it will be easier to establish the beneficiary IRA with your mom's custodian even if you eventually want to transfer the funds to another institution. Okay, so what happens then in a beneficiary IRA? All right, that's true. There's no tax. But as you start getting money out of it, you're going to pay tax. Well, the question then says, at what rate and how much? Now, if indeed, and the writer who wrote the question didn't say whether the mother was over 70 and a half or not, but if the mother who passed away had been over 70 and a half, then whatever that minimum distribution that the mother had to be taking, that RMD, that right. could continue for this child. The problem in the answer is herein. All, all the answers were correct about you could also go ahead and have that minimum distribution continue to you. 
You could even exceed it and take more if you wanted to. You weren't locked in, and that's true. But the problem is fees. What kind of fees are those? They're going to be custodian fees. Oh. And if indeed this writer set up a beneficiary IRA, there'll be an initial fee, possibly. There certainly will be a second fee to terminate that uh, that beneficiary IRA and, and roll, roll it, it over. over to another custodian. There's going to be a fee there. And the real clue to what's wrong with the answer, in my opinion, is the question began by saying, I have limited ability to meet with a professional. So if the person here who wrote the question says, I can't afford to pay a few hundred dollars for an advisory consultation, then this person is going to need to live on this money. Oh, I see. And if they're going to need to live on the money, they don't want to know what's the minimum I can take out of this IRA. They want to know how the do maximum. I live on it. And, and, and so they're ending up paying mm. fees to get the money back out. It would have made much more sense to just take the check, design a portfolio, pay the tax, and start living off of it. To go through all the hoops of a beneficiary IRA for a person who needs to live off that money immediately, it, uh, it makes no sense. So beneficiary IRAs, they can work, but they can work in cases of high wealth, not so often in cases of high need. Well, thank you. Okay, well, if you have any questions and you'd like to give us a call, 860-WPTF is our number. That's 860-9783 or 800-662-7979. And if you'd like to call us during the week, our office number is 919-872-7000. Well, let's take Will's call. Well, I think Will's still on hold. Let's take Will's call, and then we'll come back to this discussion. Thank you for joining us on Money Matters with Doug Lewis. And, Doug, it looks like we've got a caller. How can I help you, Will? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. Um, hi, Doug. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I have some property that I inherited that I'm going to sell and has a fairly large capital gain on it. When did you inherit the property, Will? A couple years ago. All right. What's the value of the property? It's it's selling for thirty three five. Thirty three. I'm not exactly sure what the basis is, but it's around ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And the basis? Uh, how did you get the basis? Well, that was the cost. That's what you. Who who left it to you? Well, actually, it was my mother inherited it, and she's been giving it to us gradually. Um, no, wait a minute. I'm confused. You said you inherited it. Well, it ultimately it was my grandmother's, um, but it's come through my mother to me. This is very crucial, the question I'm asking you. Did you inherit the property, or did you receive it by gift? I received it by gift. So you didn't inherit it? Right. Okay, that's very unfortunate. Because if you had inherited it, there'd be no capital gains. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think it's inherited property, but it's really not. It's not inherited. Unfortunately, it's not. I was hoping you were going to tell me that the, that the ten thousand was what your the basis that your mom, who owned it, had left it to you in her will, and when she died, that you thought that her basis was yours, and that is not the case. Right. If you are gifted property, then the cab, then the basis is the same basis as the person who owned it that gives it to you. That basis carries over to you. Right. On the other hand, if you... I went that way when you inherited it as well. Worst thing you can do, because there is a wonderful situation called a step-up in basis. For example, let's assume that the property you inherited, that no, that you received by gift, let's say you that, that it was worth 33500 the day that you got it. If it was worth 33500 the day you got it, and... 
the basis of the person that left it to your mom, let's say, was ten thousand, then your basis would be thirty three thousand five hundred. Right. The basis of the person who inherits property is the value on the day they inherit it, which means you turn around and sell it the next day, and there's zero capital gains. But if she gives it to you and you turn around and sell it, then you pay tax on twenty two thousand five hundred, twenty three thousand five hundred. Well, given the option, I'll keep my mother. <laughs> well, no, the be- the best right, thing the best thing is to make sure that nobody gives you anything if you think you're going to sell it. See, that's the whole that's the whole strategy. Never let somebody give away to you what you're going to hold anyway until that person passes away because you're really shooting yourself in the foot. See what I'm saying? Right. You miss all the step up in basis. Okay. Okay. Well, any more? Qu- yeah, by the way, any more questions, give me a call at the office and I'll go over your specific numbers if you want. If you want. Well, my number at the office during the week is 872-7000, 872-7000, and you can speak to Linda. Okay. Thanks. It's just the second time I've heard your program, but I enjoy it. Well, good. Thank you for listening, Will. Okay. Thanks. All right. Doug, there was another article um, in this month's Financial Planning Magazine. It was entitled, Under the Radar, A Little-Known Change to Social Security Rules Governing Early Benefits Could Hamper Retirement Planning Strategies. Yeah, I think a lot of people aren't aware of these rule changes that just happened. What the article say? Well, it began by saying that there were interest-free loans and how they worked. All right. Did you figure out how they worked? No, I didn't. Well, basically, what happened here in the past was that uh, you could start taking your Social Security early before you reach full retirement age. That means take a reduced one after age 62. Oh, okay. okay. And then at a later time, you could reapply based on a higher age and pay back to Social Security Administration, what they had sent you, and say, please recalculate me at a higher, okay. at my higher age. Okay. And because I'm giving the money back, and basically it was an interest-free loan. And was it intended to be an interest-free loan? Um, I don't think it was intended to be an interest-free loan by Social Security Administration, but it was intended to uh, help uh, the workforce slowly get themselves on their feet. However. It's all over now. Oh. There were a lot of financial planners, not myself, because I I didn't believe in this, but who were knowledgeable about that feature, and they were able to help clients maximize their choices in terms of their retirement and and, and play with it this way. I didn't like it. So even if it wasn't really a loophole, it's expired anyway. It's expired, and it's important to realize right now you can't do this. But what you can do under the new rules... Are you can uh, you can turn the spigot on and off. That's the way I like to describe it. Retirees can no longer repay the benefits and then ask the Social Security Administration to recalculate their benefits based on a new age. But what they can do is they can still suspend their benefits and then restart them at a later time. And that allows them because you see, if you are getting a job, let's say you're 62 years old, Deborah. Okay. And uh, you want to start getting your Social Security check. Okay. Well, the present law says that you can do that. It's a lower rate than waiting till 65 or 66 or even till 70. You can get a, a smaller check, but you can get it. 
but you can't get another job and earn more than, say, ballpark $15,000 a year. Oh, that's not very much. But it does allow you to work and get Social Security. Oh, I see. If you earn more than 15000 and you're getting this Social Security check, then you have to give back $1 for every three they give you. Oh, that's what they mean by that, one of three or right. one to three. So a lot of people, they make this decision, and I help them make this decision in my office. They say, well, should I start taking my check? And the answer is yes, start taking it very often, and you can earn up to $15,000 a year, and then all of a sudden they get a chance to get a bigger paycheck. The law now says you can turn off that that Social Security check, so you don't have to give it up. Turn off that spigot. Turn off the spigot. Keep getting the other one. And when you're 65, then you can go earn as much as you want and still get it. And Very then it nice. continues. That's the rule. All right. I think we're going to take one last caller. I think we have one more caller on hold. Let's see who is waiting for us. Let's let's take Bill's call. Let's take our next caller. Hi, Bill. Yes. This is Linda Lewis. How can we help you today? Well, Linda, I'll tell you, i got a question on whether I'm, I'm saving enough. Yes, sir. Um, 55. Yes, sir. And I'd like to retire at 58. Okay. Now, the pension will be about $2,000 a month. All right. And what we have now is income of about 100000 And I've got about 500000 in tax-deferred accounts. Say, so you're... you're- Okay, so you've got five hundred thousand in tax deferred accounts. Your current income is a hundred thousand. Is that you combined with your wife? Yes. All right. And will she continue to work? No. What are your expenses? Other than what we're saving, we spend the rest of it. So we're saving about twenty thousand a year. So you're spending about eighty thousand? And then of course the tax taxes. So how much you spend last year in taxes? That one I can't answer. Well, if we assume that you spent uh, maybe uh, 30000 in taxes last year. Okay. And you're saving 20000 then that says that you're spending 50000 Okay. If you're spending 50000 then what does he want to do? Linda, he wants to find out whether he'll have 50000 in three years. And you're saying that in retirement you'll get 2000 a, a month. A month. That's 24000 That's 24000 but... Do you have, Bill, anything outside of the tax-deferred investments? I mean, do you have, like, any other personal funds? Just uh, emergency money. So you don't have, like, your own mutual funds in your own name no. or CDs or anything like that? No. But that's okay. He'll be 58 years old. Yeah, no, I, you'll be able uh-huh. to access that money. So let's see what his shortfall is, Linda. He needs to have, he needs to get $50,000 before tax, which means he probably needs to get about, about 75000 He needs to get 50000 after tax to live. So he needs to end up with maybe about $75,000 coming in from everything, right? And he's got 24 of that already from the pension. So he's going to be shy about $51,000. It's got to come from somewhere, and that's going to come from, it has to come from his investments or his retirement plan. Now, you said your retirement plan is worth how much, about 500 Yes. All right, total 500 Well, obviously, if you were to try and do it today, you couldn't make it. That's right. Because 500000 will not give 51000 a year income. The question is, if we can get it growing between now and the next three years, will it grow big enough to where then it will throw off 51000 a year income? And uh, I'm not at my office. I'm down at the station during the week. I'm at the office. If you were at my office, I would be able to work some numbers for you a little better. That number at the office, by the way, is 919 
But if we go ahead and think that we can grow that 500,000 to where it's worth about 700, or about 700,000, if we got it up to 750, I would say you're all right. Uh, because 750 could comfortably give you 51,000 a year. Okay. And 51,000 a year, plus your regular 24,000 a year, would give you 75,000 a year. And then your 75,000 a year, subtracting your taxes, would leave you the 50,000 a year that we think you need. Now we've got a lot of iffy sort of assumptions here since we're doing this real quick on the back of a pad of paper. At 62, the Social Security would kick in. Oh, right. yeah. So we have right. other so we, sources of income. Yeah, well, no, we got a gap. We got a gap period there because we don't, right. and we also got a penalty period. For the first year and a half, we'd have to pay a 10% penalty. It would be an interesting equation. By the way, the money right now, what kind of retirement plan is it in? It's tax deferred. For, it's a combination of 401k and IRA. Uh, yeah, if you, um, the IRA portion we could work with now, the 401k portion we could only work with at retirement. But if I had the whole thing spread out in front of me, I could go ahead and make some recommendations about how to try and make sure that you would get it. And then we would try and grow it up to age 58 and a half, 58 when you retire. Then we have two choices. We can do, uh, there's a special section in the tax code that will let me get that money out for you and not pay the 10% tax penalty. Is that only for the IRA or both? That's for both. Okay. But, uh, we have to do it with a, uh, a five year freeze. Uh, however, that would work. We could do that, or we could go ahead and look at the living expenses at that time and see how close we are, and we may not have to go ahead and do it. We may be able to go ahead and do it on a variable. Uh, you have no money of your own invested anywhere? No. Okay. Yeah, it would be a very interesting equation. I think we could work with it and we could do it. Uh, worst case is we have to pay a penalty for a year. Uh, that would be your choice, whether to pay the penalty for the year and a half to get to where age 59, you don't have to go ahead and you can then adjust according to your needs. And then two, three more years later, we could do the Social Security. Yeah. Yeah, listen, jot down my office number. It's okay. 872-7000. Okay. That's 919-872-7000. And some people remember that as just USA 7000. And if you call my office during the week, Linda can check my schedule. Uh, generally, we're booked a little ahead of time. But whatever uh, meeting time I've got, she'll set up an appointment and tell you how we charge and so on. Okay. Okay? All right. Thanks so much for calling, Bill. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. 
Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.